which he just made up. You know, they they ask about it later. They're just words, right? He's he was yep. he penciled it into his speech. He's going to say, "We're going to do whatever it takes." And those words were then picked up by um, you know Sarkozy in France and Merkel in Germany. And the next day, they were saying, "Yeah, whatever it takes, whatever it takes." Build back better. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So you see, and, and they're just words. And I was looking. I was like, "Well, these are just words," but. We're living in a world today where the words get picked up, they get amplified, and you have people who want to believe. And so the words are enough. Yeah. The words are enough. I say that was the moment that really kind of kicked me in the teeth. I said, okay, I got to step back and understand better, or I've got to understand how this is really happening, how how the, the process of this works, about how words can move markets. So. Frankly, Kane is not just markets; it's politics. Mm-hmm. Is 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 every aspect of our lives today? I think are more and more driven by the stories that we call them in game theory missionaries. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a famous person who gets, you know, behind a microphone or in front of a camera, and they shake their finger at you and they tell you how to think about the world. They tell you a story. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Ben Hunt, founder of Epsilon Theory. In our discussion, we cover two of Ben's articles in praise of Bitcoin and the MacGuffin. Ben shares his unique views on Bitcoin TM and the broader crypto ecosystem. We discuss his approach to the world and how he's able to navigate the many narratives that dictate cycles in today's economy and markets. We also discuss the numerous profiteering games Wall Street enjoys playing and how the value and solution may lie within individuals themselves. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential, as an economic network, then join us and listen. Thanks, everybody, for joining today. I have with me Ben Hunt, CIO of Second Foundation Partners, also uh, author of Epsilon Theory, PhD from Harvard, uh, extensive <laughs> investment background. So uh, don't hold that against me. Don't, don't hold that PhD against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been living that down for a long time. Well, you know, it proves you, uh, you you went through the work at least, right? Yeah, um, yeah. No, I I was I'm a I'm a defrocked member of the, uh, the academic church. Let's 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 put it that way. Yeah. It, well, the good thing is, through uh, pain and failure, we always learn something, right? Ben, you know, again, thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell just a brief couple of minutes background of maybe how those things I just mentioned uh, relate sure. to today and and your thoughts going forward, and then we'll kind of get into. The other stuff, which um, mentioned beforehand, the Bitcoin TM article that you wrote, um, mm-hmm. the MacGuffin article here recently, and then uh, narrative economics, which comes from your prior background. Yep, absolutely. Well, you know, I I really do see myself as a former member of that academic church. So I I got my PhD up at Harvard in political science of all oxymorons, uh, and I was a uh, uh, a tenured professor. Uh, so I taught at NYU and then I had a tenured spot at SMU uh, for, for a number of years. And it, look, I, I, I mean, you, you love the lifestyle, I would call it, of, of academia. There's still line, you know, the top three reasons to be an academic are June, July, and August. And it's, it's, that's pretty true. So 
I bet I'm similar to a lot of your your listeners. I I've always had the entrepreneurial bug, and it is a bug, not a feature. You can't help yourself <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur. And 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 frankly, academia, certainly the social sciences, is not particularly let's call it hospitable uh, to, to entrepreneurs. So you know, I was on the science part of political science. I was a self-taught computer person, which I think a lot of us kind of old timers were, frankly. Uh, and so I, I left academia to start a software company. And uh, we started that right as the NASDAQ bubble burst, uh, but we were in a nice little niche market. So we, we, we did okay. Uh, it was very boring software, which is why, frankly, I think it survived <laughs> the, 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 the NASDAQ bubble popping. Uh, and so call it 2003, 2004, I, you know, I sold my stake in that company and I did some venture capital and some private equity work. A few years later, uh, a friend of mine was running the research department at a investment firm in public markets, in the stock market. And he said, look, we're, we're, we're starting, gonna start a hedge fund. Would you like to start it with me inside this larger organization? And he said, and this is what really has stuck with me, and this will be the, the connection that ties all this stuff together, right? Is that, you know, public markets, they're the biggest game in the world. And what, what ties all my work together is game theory, is playing games. I love to play games. Strategic. Who, who games. doesn't, right? We all right, right? seek exactly. that inner child. But, but that's what, that's what public markets, the stock market is, right? It's, it's the biggest game in the world. And we're all trying to figure out, we call it alpha, call it edge. We're, we're trying to figure out how to play the game better than other people. Right. And so we, we, we started this hedge fund and uh, we did well in 05, 06, and 07. And then we did really well in 08, right? When a lot of people weren't doing well. So um, a lot of money came in after that. Uh, we got the, the hedge fund up to about a billion dollars. And then it's really though in kind of by 2012, what we were doing, it just wasn't working anymore. The game playing that we were doing, right? Trying to figure out catalysts and trying to figure mm -hmm. out value, long and short. We never lost money for our clients and I'm still so proud of that, that it's, you know, it's probably the, my biggest accomplishment, I think. Uh, but, you know, we weren't, we weren't making money for our, for our clients or, or making enough money to justify the fees we were charging as a hedge fund. So we ended up giving all the money back <laughs> to our clients, which I, I don't think my wife has still forgiven me for that because, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of money. But, but you know what, Kane, it's, for me, what, that again, that thread that, that connects everything is trying to figure out the game. Yeah. And the rules of the game have changed over the last 10 years. They really changed after the mm -hmm. great financial crisis. The, the, I'll call it the rules of playing the game as an investor. Drastic, drastically, I would add there. And that one of the things that you kind of hit around here is uh, anybody that's been in the markets for, you know, a number of years or, or of, fair amount of period. So let's say a decade or more. You've been through enough cycles where, uh, particularly when you're picking stocks or you're going with a certain asset class, there's a 
a theme, a narrative that's tied to that, which yeah. if you look at fund flows, the big uh, advisors, fund companies, hedge funds, institutions, they go to these same conferences and they rub elbows with the same people. And so their performance in a lot of cases is tied to, are you on the same you know, narrative or theme that everybody else is? And do you get out before, when, or after they get out? And that kind of dick in the new, new markets, that kind of dictates your performance. You know, my partner, uh, Rusty Gwynn, he, uh, he used to work for Texas teachers and he tells the story about how, you know, he would go around talking to all of their managers, all their portfolio mm-hmm. managers. And, you know, so he'd fly to, you know, you'd go to London, you'd go to New York, you'd go out to, you know, California, you'd go, you'd go all over. And, and none of these portfolio managers had any connection with each other. Mm-hmm. And they'd all sit down and they'd tell Rusty, oh, let me tell you a story. Let me, let, me t- let me tell you what we're looking at. Yep. And at different points in time, they'd all be saying the same story. Mm-hmm. Exactly to your point, Kane, they'd all be saying the same story. And that was for, for Rusty, my partner, his kind of aha moment that so much of what we think of as being driven by fundamentals and analysis and the like is in fact driven by stories, stories. And, 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 and narrative. It's, you know, it's, I like to use some, you know, poker analogies when I talk about this stuff. It's, it's, it's not, you know, any poker game is, it's obviously, it's not just playing the cards, mm-hmm. which I link to fundamentals. It's also playing the players, right? Which is where I think it's the, the, this role of narrative. And I, and I think that over the last certainly 10 years and, and in an accelerating fashion, it's necessary more and more to play the players. Yeah. That, that that role of narrative is so much more important. You, you know, I, I take I can tell you my kind of moment where it really hit me like a ton of bricks that the world of investing had really changed. And that for me was in the summer of 2012 when Europe was collapsing, right? Mm-hmm. There was real fear about the euro. Cyprus. Make it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So, you know, you had everything was just was just collapsing. Hey, I'm, I'm running a long short hedge fund on, and I saw, just like I'd done in 08, I said, okay, I see this, the, what's happening in the banking sector. I see these banks are undercapitalized. I see the catalyst for what's going to make this you know, hit. I, so I was really short. I had mm-hmm. a, a big short position in, the, in the, the summer of 2012. And it was you know, working out gangbusters for me. I was like, okay, this is going to be 2008 all over again. And then I'll never forget, it was Mario Draghi, who's head of the ECB. And he gave a speech. We gave two speeches. The first was the whatever it takes speech, which is just made up. You know, they, they ask about it later. They're just words, right? He, just, he, yep. was, he penciled it into his speech. He's going to say, we're going to do whatever it takes. And those words were then picked up by, um, you know, Sarkozy in France and Merkel in Germany. And the next day they were saying, yeah, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Build back better. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So you see, and, and they're just words. And I was looking at it like, well, these are just words. Mm-hmm. But we're living in a world today where the words get picked up, they get amplified, and you have people who want to believe. And so the words are enough. Yeah. The words are enough. Mm-hmm. And that's 
I say that was the moment that really kind of kicked me in the teeth and said, okay, I got to step back and understand better. Before I try to manage other people's money anymore, I've got to understand how this is really happening and how, how the, the process of this works about how words can move markets. So, you know, that, that's what I've been doing um, since 2012. I've been, been writing about it, been doing research about it, about how words, stories, how that, frankly, Kane, is not just markets, it's politics, mm-hmm. is, is, is every aspect of our lives today, I think are more and more drawn, you know, driven by the stories that we call them in game theory, missionaries, right? Mm-hmm. It's a famous person who gets, you know, behind a microphone or in front of a camera and they shake their finger at you and they tell you how to think about the world. They tell you a story. And I, I had a similar, it was around the same time I was um, in institutional equity sales um, at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was a similar realization. So you get on, you get in at, at 7 a.m., you're on yep. the, the morning call. And morning call. You distribute the research to all your institutions that you cover that care. And we had this database, read all the names yep. and spit out who cared about what. And then you go to them with a note. And I realized it was a Nike call. Um and the analyst gets on, here's all the numbers, but here's the story, right? And so yeah. I'm thinking about it. I was like, well, you know, this guy's never worked for Nike a day in his life. <laughs> That's right. But That's right. he's telling the CEO, CFO, and CIO, like, you don't know how to run your business because these are the metrics that you should be looking at and blah, blah, blah. And I don't remember the story was positive or negative, but I was like, so all of our investors, the, the investors that push around trillions of dollars when you add it all up. They're waiting for this story to be brought to them to decide. And it's less about the numbers and what the math says from some guy that's never been in the business and more about like, does this story bore me? So I'm not going to buy the name or is this story make me so interested that again, I'm not looking at the fundamentals, the, the data other than what I just kind of have to put on the fact sheet and say, this is why we bought it. But really it's that story. And the bigger driver, when you look at that is like, okay, well, if the guy inside a company's kid needs new shoes, new pair of Nikes, and he says, well, I don't make enough money and I'm just making this up. Mm -hmm. So I got to go to my boss and say, Hey, I need a raise because the cost to buy my kid's stuff is more than I'm making. And that guy runs it up the chain and finally goes and somebody says, okay, this guy needs more money, but now we need to generate more revenue to make up for that margin we just lost because we got that, we gave that employee. Yep. So it gets back around to the employee, employee, he gets the raise. Well, guess what they did to the Nike shoes? They raised the price. So now he needs another raise and it's just a circular thing that these stories get built around. Well, that, 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 that's right. I mean, but what you just described came, that's wall street. Yeah, Wall Street. Wall Street is an advertiser. Wall Street is a story machine. So mm-hmm. when we talk, so for example, people talk about multiples. You know, what's the mm-hmm. multiple on the stock to earnings or to sales? A multiple is a story. Why is it three times, you know, earnings rather than thirty times earnings? Well, what's the story? How does it grab you? Mm-hmm. And the and the, and the crazy thing came, all these institutional investors. They think that they're, I was going to say, they think that they're the smart ones. And they, and they are smart, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I, absolutely. It's the, the smartest people in the world 
work in yeah. finance because yeah. that's because it pays, <laughs> right? It's the most money in the world. So the smartest people in the world, smartest people in the world, work, working in, in 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 finance. So I don't want to say you know they think they're smarter than anyone. I mean, I mean they are really smart, but they think they're immune to this stuff. Right. They think they're immune to story. As human beings, we are, none of us are immune to story. We're just yeah. not. We're hardwired to respond to this stuff. They get all the credit for being the smartest guys in the world. But I mean, if you look at any crisis, who was the driver? Wasn't no. the retail guy. It was the institutional exactly. guy. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that, that, that's exactly right. So, you know, so my work over the last four years, particularly, because we, we, my, my, Partner, Rusty and I, we, we left the, the, the asset manager we were working with and we started our own company to, you know, just do this, do the research mm-hmm. on, again, I'm going to call them the story arcs mm-hmm. that exist in markets, in particular, the stories we tell ourselves over and over again, where we use the same grammar, we use the same language, we use the same vocabulary to talk about different things, you know, different stocks or different markets. But it's the same story, yeah, over and over again. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's funny. It's one of those things where everyone knows this is how Hollywood works, mm-hmm. right? So, so every movie you've ever seen that comes out of Hollywood is a is a three act play. It's a three act structure uh, where they introduce an object of desire that's called the MacGuffin. They have what's called rising action through acts one and two. Right before you get to act three, you have this kind of climactic scene, which results in then declining action. You can still have action, but it's declining action in terms of setting up the, the conflict through act three. Any movie you've ever seen, just type in the name of the movie plus three act structure, and you'll see the design for it. It's the same structure because it works. We, 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 our brains are literally hardwired to look for that object of desire, to look for the conflict between the protagonist and the, you know, the other players in the, in, in the plot. They all follow the same structure because it works. And in, in your, uh, one of your other podcasts, you talked about that being, the, um, I don't have my notes in front of me, but the grammatical structure, there was a, it's, it's a, yes. it's a series of grammatical words, the way that you, the phrases that you lay them out. And it draws that in. And that that's part of what I found very interesting about your Bitcoin TM article that you wrote mm-hmm. last year. Um, you know, if you have a background in financial markets and you understand how the market participants work and how assets flow around, it's kind of easy to see. Like Bitcoin is is a phenomenally new uh, asset class that does a lot of things that um, you know, other stores of value haven't done. Yep. But when you really look at it, all of the infrastructure is the same. It's just using more technology to achieve the goal, less people. And so you see a lot of these narratives and and through each wave, if you've been through more than one, there's these dominant narratives that get all these people, Mm -hmm. kind of what you're talking about is buildups, like sound as hard as money ever. Like, what does that even mean? Like what fundamentally, what can I do with that? Nothing. Cause I can show you a chart that if you, had the soundest hardest money ever gold for a hundred years you would be highly disappointed that you didn't own stocks exactly now it doesn't mean that gold's bad and it doesn't mean that bitcoin's bad but it means that for a economic system to function 
it takes more than sound money. And so I'm just curious, you know, the article was great. Uh, you had a good point on at the time, considering Bitcoin as a good art, not like an NFT or something like that, but maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about Yeah, those. Yeah, let me describe what, what the way I wrote the article. And the, the name of the article is called In Praise of Bitcoin. And I, re I really mean that, right? I, I, I think that, uh, and this is my highest praise, I, I think that Bitcoin is good, elegant art. Right, it's, it's 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 so ingenious, you know. It's it's what I, I you know, I think we should all aspire to is to mm -hmm. to 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 put into practice a really good idea. Right? Yep. What I wrote the article about, and what 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 you know, I call Bitcoin TM. I I can also call it, you know, I kind of you doesn't work on a podcast, but I call it kind of jazz hands. Right? It's it's the transformation of Bitcoin into Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, with jazz hands and exclamation mm -hmm. mark. Well, the Wall and Street version of that's it. Yeah. That's it, Kane. It's it's the way in which Wall Street and Washington, for that matter, mm -hmm. they're not out to ban Bitcoin, right? That's mm -hmm. not the play. The play is to co-opt Bitcoin, to turn it into another story. Yeah. Another security that they can sell you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was will. getting. And that's what I was getting at because if you look at how it works, it's the same thing that we have, but it's a story that's fresh. Yep. And and in the last couple of years, it's wired. It's not tired, right? Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've we've seen the memification of stocks mm -hmm. and economics and supply chains. It doesn't matter, like everything. And so, it's really the memes that drive the the value in different asset classes more so than hey i can use these bricks to build a house it's well well that's right that's that's right Kane. And, and i think it's so important for your readers you know who who or listeners excuse me who who don't come from that kind of wall street background to understand the difference between we'll call it levels and flow mm -hmm. all right levels is what we mean by price Right, price levels. How much is something worth? And you know, you say yourself, you know, you're 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 a you're a family, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to uh, preserve your wealth. You're trying to uh, increase your wealth. What you're concerned about is those are those price levels, right? Right. You want that store of value. You want to to, to grow your wealth. What you want, what you're looking for, is your focus is on price levels. Yep. That ain't Wall Street. Yep. Wall Street could not care less about the price of anything because Wall Street is a flow business. Wall Street makes its money not by the price being higher or the price being lower, but by charging you a transaction fee every time you buy and sell. Yep. Wall Street is a flow business and once you recognize that and see everything you see, you know, understand everything you see and hear from Wall Street as part of a flow business, that'll help, I think, you understand the stories and, and why, uh, you know, Wall Street is so determined to co-opt everything and turn it into a story because that means they can sell you more of it, sell you that security. It's exactly what they did with gold. 
So that was what I was going to get at. I did some podcasts at the end of the year specifically for that because the narrative is it's, uh, you know, can't confiscate it. You can't manipulate it. You can't leverage it. And I was like, well, none of that's true because (laughs) it's happening right now. And and you can see by knowing and and kind of being a part of those systems and, and looking at the things, the fundamental signs that people don't really care about anymore you could see that leverage. You could see that rehypothecation. You could yep. see that that manipulation of spot market, and you could very clearly see it, especially when you relate it and correlate it back to gold. And that that's what I did. Um, doesn't mean I I dislike Bitcoin because I do like Bitcoin. I think there's properties mm-hmm. um, from a Agreed. financial technology that are way better and more advanced than anything that we have and have had to date, but. I, I struggle with some of the just hardcore narratives because nothing really is a surprise uh, if you look at the price of today relative to those signs that were all, you know, waving in the air back all the way back into early, you know, or mid to late 21. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's exactly right, Kane. So, so all financial innovation with the potential exception of the ATM machine. Right, which was frankly what Paul Volcker, you know, the former mm-hmm. Fed chair who crushed inflation, you know, and did what what he had to do to beat inflation back in the '80s. You know, Volcker's famous comment was, you know, the, the the only good thing that's ever come out of financial innovation is the ATM, right? And I, I think he's really yeah. right, right? Yeah. Because here's the thing: every other piece of financial innovation other than the ATM, it's one of two things, and it's always and only one of two things. It's either a new way to securitize something, that is a, a, a way to turn a thing into a piece of paper mm-hmm. that can be bought and sold. Gold or Bitcoin. Or, or, right, exactly. Or it's a way to leverage something, mm-hmm. a way to apply borrowed money to something. That's it. Yep. All of financial innovation is either an exercise in securitization or leverage. Yeah. And you see that when physical gold was turned into a gold ETF and other financial products. Yeah, you know, it's the way we talk about it in the business, right? We don't mm-hmm. we don't we don't talk about, oh, we're going to launch this, you know, this this great new fund that this has. We say we're going to launch a product. Yep. That's the way we talk about it internally. It's it's like a you know, a, a new a new form of you know processed cheese. Right, it's just a product, and it changes things in a couple of ways. One, because you can now securitize it. To your point, you can now apply leverage to it. You can apply borrowed money to it. Why do you do that? Because it increases the flow. Mm -hmm. Put a good story around it, and people can borrow money, and you can you can lend it out to people. You can use it as collateral for buying and selling other things. It's all designed to increase flow through the application of securitization and leverage.